Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Boots and Trunks podcast here on the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network. Just a quick thank you as ever to everyone for listening and for giving your feedback and kind words on Twitter. It really is hugely appreciated. A quick plug again for the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network. Make sure you're subscribed to the feed and follow the Twitter account at WDKWPN. That's at WDKWPN. Of course, make sure to follow the Boots and Trunks podcast Twitter account. That's at Boots Trunks. And one other quick notice. Over on the Twitter feed, I've been posting a weekly playlist to add some variety to my pro wrestling viewing. Feel free to watch along and let me know your thoughts on any of the matches you enjoy. Today's podcast is about the nature of stardom and how a star can be made in a single night with the right opponent, in the right venue and in the right promotion. We look back at the 1994 Super J Cup and the long-term impact that show had on the world of pro wrestling. And it wouldn't be the Boots and Trunks podcast, of course, without us taking a diversion on the way. This time, we take a look at a young footballing prodigy who stole the show on his Manchester United debut. And so, without further delay, let's get on with the show, as the Boots and Trunks podcast presents Episode 5, A Star Was Born. Chapter 1. This is the one. When Arsene Wenger's arsenal arrived at Goodison Park on October 19, 2002, the expectation was that the home team Everton would be easily swatted aside. This was the arsenal of Bergkamp, Henri, Pires and Vieira. They had won their second double in four years only a few months previously and hadn't lost a single game in their last 30. If the visitors that day were flying high, the soon-to-become invincibles of English football, the hosts, by contrast, were in the midst of a rebuild. Resources were tight and relegation was always a nagging concern at Everton. What Wenger's men had not accounted for, however, was a 16-year-old from Croxteth in Liverpool stealing the show off the bench and announcing himself to the football world. With the score poised at one all, the Everton manager David Moyes gambled and called upon Wayne Rooney. Rooney had made his debut a few months previously and had scored his first goals for the club in a cup tie a fortnight earlier. Even at the tender age of 16, Rooney's self-confidence was remarkable. He fully believed that he was already good enough to start every game. In a 2017 interview looking back at the game, Rooney tells us, I was fuming before kickoff because I had played a couple of games before that and I thought I had done quite well and deserved to start. When I was 16, I was always confident. I thought I was good enough to play and that was always part of my character as a football player, not being happy that I wasn't playing. What happens next is the stuff of legend. The clock has already reached 90 minutes when Rooney effortlessly pulls a long hopeful clearance out of the sky. His first touch is immaculate, killing the ball dead, allowing him to spin and advance towards the Arsenal box. Without a moment's thought or hesitation, he unleashes a beautiful, unstoppable curling shot. It arcs in a perfect parabola beyond the keeper's despairing dive and gently glances the underside of the crossbar on his way towards the back of the net. 
It is a sensational goal. The commentary too is just as perfect as the goal. Clive Tilsley, the voice of football at the time, utters the immortal words. Remember the name, Wayne Rooney, as the stadium rises to acclaim one of their own. Looking back at the footage, it is remarkable how effortless everything about that goal is. Much is often made of the exuberance and fearlessness of youth. Nonetheless, it takes an extraordinary temperament to do what Rooney did here at the tender age of 16, seizing a high-profile game by the scruff of the neck in such a stunning manner. It is one of the great football moments in recent history. Wayne Rooney had taken to the Premier League stage like a duck to water. The goal immediately propelled Rooney into superstardom. He would go on to score 15 goals in 67 appearances for Everton. It is arguable, however, that his hometown club never got to see the best of him. As an Everton player, he looked promising. As an international player, however, he looked world-class, right from the moment he pulled on the English shirt. It was almost as if the more high-profile the stage, the brighter Rooney would shine. If the goal against Arsenal announced Rooney's arrival to the British public, then it was at the European Championships in 2004 that he announced his arrival to the world. Playing as a second striker, just behind Michael Owen, Rooney would completely overshadow his more illustrious teammate. In the opening game against France, he was a constant menace, winning a penalty and looking completely at home against a team that included Henri, Zidane and Vieira. A defeat to the French, however, meant that the pressure was immediately on for their second game against Switzerland. A strong response was needed and Rooney was the man who rose to the occasion, scoring twice in a 3-0 victory. In their final group match against Croatia, Rooney again scored twice to fire them into the quarter-finals. Two goals in successive games is remarkable in its own right, but it was the quality of the strikes that really set the world talking. His first against Croatia was perhaps the pick of the bunch, an accurate driven shot from 20 yards. The second showcased his more cerebral side, exchanging a neat one-two with Michael Owen before calmly slotting past the keeper. In the quarter-finals, England would face Portugal. It says much about the influence of the 18-year-old that England's hopes of further advancement would be dashed by a foot injury sustained early on in the game. Nonetheless, the Euros had been a huge personal success for Rooney, arguably his finest summer tournament in an England jersey. He had taken to the international stage like a duck to water. Rooney's performances that summer had been noted at the very highest level of the game. Manchester United in 2004 were in something of a transition period. Competition at the top of the Premier League had never been stronger. Arsenal had just gone an entire season undefeated, an unprecedented achievement. Meanwhile, Jose Mourinho, armed with Roman Abramovich's millions, had just taken the helm at Chelsea and would go on to dominate for the next two years. The jury was still out on a callow young Ronaldo who had arrived the summer before. A number of other questionable signings had left the squad looking weaker than usual. The goalkeeping situation was uncertain. Roy Keane and Ruud van Nistelrooy were nearing the end of their time at the club, 
and would need to be jettisoned before the glory days would return. There were some who said that Alex Ferguson had taken his eye off the ball, distracted by a bitter legal dispute over the ownership of the racehorse Rock of Gibraltar. The furore surrounding Rio Ferdinand's recent eight-month suspension for missing a drugs test only added to the sense that all was not well at Old Trafford. It was a club that badly needed a pick-me-up, and that pick-me-up came in the form of Wayne Rooney. With Newcastle reportedly sniffing around, and Chelsea, with their limitless finances looming ominously, United decided to make their move. A single conversation with Ferguson was all it would take to convince Rooney that United was the club for him. After some protracted negotiations, a £27 million transfer fee was agreed. Based on the story we've heard so far, one would be forgiven for thinking that Rooney's transition from Everton to United would be an easy one. And yet, there were still some questions and doubts, not least in the young man's own mind. Firstly, there was the aforementioned injury suffered at the European Championships. It was the first major setback of his career, the same broken metatarsal sustained by David Beckham a few years previously. The summer of 2004 must have felt unbearably long for Rooney. The injury meant that he arrived at United not fully fit. More importantly, it meant that he missed pre-season training and a chance to develop an understanding with his teammates. Before he had even kicked a ball, he was playing catch-up. And, of course, there was the Liverpool-Manchester divide. To say that there's a rivalry between the two cities is putting it mildly. It operates on a sporting level, a cultural level and even an economic level. Obviously, there's the footballing rivalry. United and Liverpool are by far the most successful teams in the country. But the hatred runs far deeper than that. It dates all the way back to industrial times, when the establishment of Manchester as a port in its own right caused irreparable damage to the economy of Liverpool's shipping industry. In the 60s and 70s, Liverpool had Silla Black, Jerry and the Pacemakers and, of course, the Beatles. And in the 80s and 90s, the Manchester music scene came to the forefront, with bands like the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, Joy Division and Oasis. In an appearance on the official Man United podcast last year, Rooney revealed for the first time his fears that it would be difficult for him to win the Manchester locals over. Being a scouser playing for Man United, I knew I had to win the fans over, because if it didn't go well, then I was probably a player who would get less time than maybe somebody else because of that. Thirdly, there was the nagging fear that the step up to United would be too much for such a young man to handle. Many more experienced and decorated players had wilted under the unrelenting pressure and demands of life at Old Trafford. Back then, we didn't know if Rooney was a mere breakout star or someone who would still be at the top of the game a decade later. And the hype around Rooney was insane. In typical British fashion, they were building the young man up in the hope of later tearing him down. Outrageously, the tabloid media those great bastions of responsibility and restraint had already dubbed him the White Pele. There is huge pressure on Rooney because he is not a teenager who will come in and people will wait for him to deliver. He is going to go into that team and be expected to make a real impact. Alan Hansen said after the completion of the move. In the words of their captain, Roy Keane, 
United was a club where players had to stand up and be counted. Keane had been particularly scathing of teammate Juan Sebastian Varane in 2002, publicly criticising him for going missing in a crucial Champions League game against Bayer Leverkusen. United was a club that demanded much of its players, especially its expensive big-name signings. Champions League nights were the litmus test of their credentials. It was straight into the cauldron of one such night at Old Trafford on the 28th of September 2004 that Wayne Rooney was thrust for his United debut. A quick look at the team sheet for that game against Fenerbahce only confirmed the scale of the challenge facing Rooney. The midfield was comprised of Cleverson and Eric Jemba Jemba with David Bellion on the right wing. All three were recent arrivals to the club and all three would go on to spectacularly fail as United players. Under the harsh glare of the Old Trafford floodlights, only the strongest survive. The level of anticipation about his debut was quite remarkable. Looking back at the footage brings back so many memories for me as a lifelong United fan. The Rooney signing really felt like a game changer at the time. One of the biggest signings I can recall in my time as a fan. Fenerbahce were a decent team at the time. They had won their first game of the competition and their side was largely made up of the Turkish squad that had made the semi-finals of the 2002 World Cup. Fittingly, it is Clive Tilsley who again provides the iconic soundtrack. Even through the TV screen, the stadium appears to crackle with anticipation. A young boy is shown in the crowd, holding up a thank you Rooney sign, proudly showing off his new number eight jersey. Truly, on this night, we all felt like excited kids. One of the main reasons I love Manchester United is the traditions of the club, their dedication to promoting youth from within, the proud record of having at least one youth team player in every matchday squad stretching back over 4,000 games, their use of marauding swashbuckling wingers, their commitment to attacking football, the presence for many years of at least one Irishman in the team, from Moran to McGrath to Irwin to Keane to O'Shea, their never-say-die attitude, the comebacks, the injury-time winners, the players who take to the pitch with a swagger, a hint of arrogance. One such tradition is the music played at Old Trafford on match day. Apparently adopted at the request of Gary Neville in the early 2000s, this is the one by Manchester's own The Stone Roses became the song that would greet the players onto the pitch. Ian Brown, the songwriter and lead singer of The Stone Roses, also happened to be a massive United fan. In an interview with The Guardian, he revealed, I wrote that tune in 1986 when I was on the dole and there was no way I could have known that 20 years later United would be coming out to the pitch to it. It still gets me every time. It's an amazing feeling. Although not a song with any particular connection to football, it nonetheless makes perfect sense in that setting. It's a song of hope, an anthem of optimism. Its simple lyrics perfectly encapsulate that feeling of anticipation we all get on match day. This is the one, oh, this is the one I've waited for. It makes us believe that on this particular day, in this particular game, something extraordinary might just happen. For United, in 2004, 
the signing of Wayne Rooney was a fresh cause for optimism after a relatively fallow period. Perhaps he was the one, the one that we'd been waiting for. But back to the game. The camera is fixed on Rooney throughout the walk from tunnel to pitch, almost in the hope that he shows some sign of nerves. But he shows none. Quite the opposite, in fact. He swaggers out onto the hallowed Old Trafford turf with all the rockstar bravado of a prime Ian Brown. His jersey has a very noticeable tear down the middle of the chest. He would later explain that he needed to rip the neck in order to make it fit more comfortably. But in the moment, it gives him the appearance of the Incredible Hulk, about to unleash his fury on the opposition. His eagerness to be involved in the game is apparent right from the kickoff. In truth, his first few touches are sloppy and poor, a symptom of his recent injury layoff. At one point, he leaps into a silly challenge that might easily have earned him a red card in more recent fussier times. Any doubts about his nerves, however, are firmly dispelled with his first goal in the 17th minute. His strike partner, Ruud van Nistelrooy, for once plays provider with a neat through ball into the inside left channel. With an impressive burst of pace, Rooney is onto it, clipping it high into the net with his weaker left foot. Rooney's two-footedness is something that has been forgotten over time, and the aplomb with which he takes this chance is astonishing. Old Trafford erupts. A United legend, a star is born. His second goal, nine minutes later, demonstrates his vision and spatial awareness. He somehow evades a tackle without ever touching the ball. Without so much as a goalward glance, he drives it home low and hard into the bottom corner from 25 yards, this time with his right foot. The Fenerbahce defenders simply have no answer for this young man's power, pace and directness. His hat-trick goal comes from a free kick on the edge of the box. It is a controlled and delicate strike, like a golfer guiding a pitch towards the flag. It's reminiscent of the perfect arc of his debut goal against Arsenal for Everton. For all the power and aggression he has shown in his first two strikes, there is silk too to go with the steel. The way the crowd rises as one as the ball sails perfectly into the top corner is mesmerising to watch. Any fears that the young scouser had about being accepted by the Stretford end already seem ludicrous. He has made himself an idol after less than an hour in the jersey. Almost as impressive as the goal itself is the assertiveness he shows in the lead up to the goal. Even on his debut, he has no compunctions about claiming the free kick for himself ahead of established veterans like Ryan Giggs. On this, his debut night, he is not prepared to share centre stage with anyone. Even putting the goals to one side, it's a stunningly mature display. Once he shakes the rust off, his passing is crisp and neat, his first touch sure. He works hard all night, tracking runs and tackling diligently. His aerial prowess is in evidence too, as he flicks the ball on to set up United's sixth goal in a resounding win. He shows anticipation, courage, immaculate control, directness, power and above all an elite mentality. In truth, there really are no words to describe Rooney's United debut adequately. It is sensational Roy of the Rover stuff. A hat-trick within 53 minutes, all three goals from outside the box. It is the greatest debut performance I have ever seen from any player and a seminal moment in United's modern history.
Rooney would go on to play nearly 400 games for United. He is the club's highest ever goal scorer. He would win five league titles, the Champions League, the Europa League, the FA Cup, three League Cups and the World Club Cup. He was so good and he delivered so consistently and so relentlessly that his greatness is still taken for granted. And yet, arguably, his finest individual display in the red jersey may have been his first. He took to the Champions League stage like a duck to water, as he did every stage he had graced in his young career. Today's episode of the Boots and Trunks podcast is about star-making performances. At every step up that Rooney took in his career, be it senior football, international football, Champions League, or moving to Manchester United, he made the transition look easy. In Chapter 2, we will look at one of the most important and iconic nights in wrestling history when stars were also born and elevated to new levels. Chapter 2 Pride comes before a fall. It is no exaggeration to say that the 16th of April 1994 was a day that changed the course of modern wrestling history. The Super Jacob, held for the first time on that date, was the brainchild of Jushin Thunder Liger. Junior heavyweight wrestling had always been the poor relation in Japan. There was a widely held perception that the heavyweights were the real stars. Even though they frequently stole the show, the belief was that juniors could never draw crowds in their own right. In short, junior heavyweight wrestling was lacking in respect and prestige. Buoyed by the success of his double champion bout in February against the IWGP heavyweight title holder Shinya Hashimoto, Liger took matters into his own hands. Liger's idea was to host a one-night, single elimination tournament exclusively featuring junior heavyweights at Sumo Hall. If his first aim was to prove that juniors could draw, he more than succeeded. The tournament was a box office hit, drawing a sellout crowd of 11,500 to Ryugoku Kokagikan. It was a remarkable achievement in its own right, doubly so when you consider that across the town, all Japan were also running against them attracting 16,000 people to the champion carnival finals at Budokan. When the J-Cup highlights aired on TV a week later, the show did a 0.22 rating, the highest it had ever done in that particular time slot. This was definitely one for the Liger was right folder. Part of what makes this show so unique is that it wasn't exclusively a New Japan Pro Wrestling event. Liger looked far and wide and tried to assemble the best possible field of wrestlers, regardless of affiliation or promotion. Amongst the companies featured were CMLL, FMW, WAR and Michinoku Pro. It was truly a stellar field, one of the best ever assembled. You've got young, hungry Westerners like Benoit wrestling as Wild Pegasus, Malenko and Guerrero wrestling as Black Tiger determined to make their mark. Legends of the sport in waiting such as Liger and Negro Casas. Standouts of the independent scene such as the great Sasuke and Takamichinoku. Japanese fans were also seeing Hayabusa for the first time in a trial run for the gimmick which had previously only been seen in Mexico. Today's episode of Boots and Trunks is about star-making performances. 
the idea that in a single night someone can go from zero to hero. If proving that juniors could draw was Liger's first aim in running the J-Cup, his second was to create new household names. One of the remarkable and unique things about Liger is his complete selflessness in how he approaches the business. Where many would protect their spot and put themselves first, Liger was always trying to elevate the wider scene around him to his level. The holistic view he took of the junior heavyweight scene in 1994 is so commendable. His generosity of spirit and desire to do the right thing is a huge part of his legacy. It would have been easy for Liger to book the tournament around himself. As the undisputed junior ace of New Japan, he would have been a worthy winner or even finalist. But Liger had different ideas. The story of the 1994 Super J Cup wasn't to be his. Rather, he built the tournament around a relatively unheralded, regional, independent wrestler from Michinoku Pro. Masanori Murakawa was born in 1969 in Tohoku, the northern region of Japan's largest island, Honshu. The region is best known for its stunning rural scenery, hot springs and harsh winters. When Murakawa became a wrestler, he chose the name Masa Michinoku. Masa, an abbreviation of his first name, and Michinoku, after the alternative name for his home region. Later, on a tour of Mexico, Murakawa adopted the mask, full body suit and name Ninja Sasuke. This was the predecessor to the great Sasuke gimmick that he would adopt upon his return to Japan. In 1993, Sasuke founded the community-based promotion that would later widely become known as Michinoku Pro Wrestling. Originally known as Northeastern Wrestling, it was the first independent promotion in Japan to base their operations outside of Tokyo. The promotion style was heavily influenced by Lucha Libre, with many of the wrestlers wearing masks and trios matches being their forte. When Super Delphin, the great Sasuke and Taka Michinoku were invited to wrestle in the 1994 Super J Cup, it was a huge shot in the arm for Michinoku Pro. Up until that point, they had only run a small handful of times in Tokyo. That is not to say that they weren't already capable of producing high-end wrestling, however. Super Delphin's matches with Sasuke from July 1993 and a young Dick Togo from October of the same year are readily available online and well worth seeking out. But back to the tournament itself. In total, there were 14 wrestlers involved in a single knockout format. Two wrestlers, Wild Pegasus and Sasuke, would receive buys to the quarterfinals. If you do have the time, I would heartily recommend watching the show in full. It's a remarkably easy watch. No match goes over 20 minutes. Indeed, many of the earlier matches are well under 10. You get iconic moments like the big Hayabusa dive onto Liger to open their first round match. If you can stomach it, you get to see a young Guerrero and Ben Rocco at it in the quarterfinals. Pick of the matches in the first two rounds is the meeting of El Samurai and Sasuke. Really, there are no bad matches, even if the decision to give Gato a semi-final run remains something of a head-scratcher. It is not the intention of this podcast to recap in detail the events of the entire tournament. Instead, we will focus on the semi-final match between Jushin Thunder Liger and the great Sasuke. Contrary to what Dave Meltzer will tell you, it is head and shoulders the best match on the show, and it's also the match that does most to propel Sasuke to stardom. 
Watching the footage back in these pandemic times, it is most striking how animated and noisy the crowd is. The atmosphere is electric. They are reacting to everything they see. They are clearly invested in these junior heavyweights. Striking too is the sheer number of photographers around the ring. Everything about this match and this event feels big, important and momentous. A large part of the greatness of the match is the way the two wrestlers managed to turn the crowd against Liger and in favour of Sasuke. They start by dispensing with the usual early babyface shine and any real semblance of a feeling out process. Instead, they get straight down to the business of establishing Liger's dominance. As they face off, the size difference between the two is immediately apparent. It's a rare chance for Liger to play the bully against a smaller opponent, and he takes to this heelish role with gusto. Everything about his demeanour suggests that he's offended at the mere presence of this little guy from the Indies. How dare he come to his turf, to his promotion and his tournament and try to take him on. One of the things I have always loved about Liger is the way he applies submission holds. In our previous episode, we discussed in great detail the importance of applying holds in a way that makes them look as painful as possible. And there are few better than Liger in this regard. When he sits into a camel clutch, he leans right back with all his might, almost bending Sasuke in half. At one point, he claws his fingers at Sasuke's face while still maintaining the hold. It's the type of vicious, gritty, fine detail that I adore. The crowd noticeably turns when Liger hits a rolling capo kick. They brilliantly play up the idea that Sasuke is knocked out cold. He sells it like death. The ref is great here too, shooing Liger away and frantically checking on Sasuke's prone body. The ref tries to lift his head, but it drops back to the canvas in a sickening manner. The whole thing is executed in such a convincing manner that you can't help but wonder has he genuinely been knocked out? And the crowd is clearly having similar thoughts. It's a remarkable little piece of psychology. Fearing that this eagerly anticipated match is over before it has really got going, the crowd rallies behind Sasuke. The first pro-Sasuke chants begin to reverberate around Sumo Hall. Instead of going for the pin, Liger continues the assault. He's being a real dick here. He attacks Sasuke's arm, not because he has a particular plan that will play out later in the match, but more because he simply wants to hurt him and he goes about it with particular viciousness. While he has a cross-faced chicken wing applied, he never stays still, riding from side to side in the same way that Kawada applies his stretch plum. The torture continues with the Kimura and an armbar and a nasty stomp to the arm. He's demonstrative and active throughout, shaking his famous mane of hair from side to side for added effect. It is riveting to watch. It really feels like he's trying to rip Sasuke's arm clean out of its socket. Sasuke, for his part, is wonderfully sympathetic. His relatively small stature means it's impossible for him to power out of these various submission predicaments. He screams in agony. His free arm flails wildly in the air. He's completely at the mercy of Liger, who almost toys with him. Even though the only parts of his face that are visible through the mask are his mouth and jaw, he still somehow convinces us he's in excruciating pain. When he finally launches his comeback, it comes in the only way he truly knows how. Reckless, 
aerial assault. He hits an acai moonsault that somehow manages to be both beautiful and out of control all at once. He connects with Liger, but also crashes into the announcer's desk, further injuring his damaged arm. He follows up with a wild somersault plancha over the ring post to the floor. It's another massive gamble that doesn't fully connect and probably takes as much out of Sasuke as it does Liger. But desperate men will do desperate things. There's nothing conceited or performative about Sasuke's high flying here. He's not trying to show off that he can do stuff. He's not trying to wow the crowd for the sake of it. He's throwing his body at Liger in any way he can out of sheer desperation to get back into the match. Every time he connects, he also makes sure to convey that it comes at some cost to himself as well. It's a stark contrast to a lot of the polished high flying we see in modern wrestling. While impressive on some athletic level, in the context of a pro wrestling match, a lot of that stuff leaves me cold. Everything Sasuke throws at Liger feels impactful, like it would actually hurt. High flying absolutely has its place in pro wrestling, but it should still be an act of aggression and not a showcase of how smooth and well practiced it looks. The brilliance of this match lies in the fact that it combines lots of little touches that this podcast always appreciates with bigger, more memorable spots. One of my favourite little moments is a near fall when Sasuke reverses a Frankensteiner into a pinning attempt of his own. It's such a close run thing that Liger makes a big deal of checking with the ref to make sure it wasn't three. When he realises he's still in the game, he visibly breathes a sigh of relief, punches the air with sheer elation. It's a wonderful way to put over the closeness of the near fall and also the importance of the match. A word here too for the extraordinary ability of Liger to somehow convey emotion better than most, despite wrestling in a full mask and bodysuit. He, along with El Generico, might be the two most physically demonstrative wrestlers in history, and it can't be a coincidence that both wrestled within the confines of a mask. I have long held the theory that all young wrestlers should spend at least some of their formative years wrestling in a mask for this very reason. The importance of conveying attitude and emotion through body language is sadly lost on many wrestlers. The sheer range that Liger demonstrates in this match alone is unreal. When he's in a bully mode, he seems to grow a foot taller. His contempt for his opponent is obvious, even in the simple act of fixing his hair. His frustration at his inability to put Sasuke away is palpable. His relief at not being caught by that flash pin is obvious. It's a masterclass in emoting fully and appropriately without ever veering into melodrama. And so we come to the finish of the match. I first watched this match over 18 years ago. While the rest of the match I had long forgotten, the finish remains vivid in my memory. In a 2016 documentary on the life of Sasuke, one particular quote from Jinsei Shinzaki stands out. Sasuke is full of interesting ideas, Shinzaki said. Only Sasuke can come up with the ideas he has, but he's sloppy. That is his flaw. He can be amazing and awful at the same time. The finish to the match perfectly encapsulates everything Shinzaki said about Sasuke. He goes for some kind of a springboard move off the top rope, probably a Mysterio Rana or a springboard dropkick, but at the vital moment he slips and crashes to the canvas. 
in any other match, in any other ring, against any other opponent, it would be an embarrassing catastrophe. But this is no ordinary match, and Jushin Thunder Liger is no ordinary opponent. Without missing a beat, Liger sarcastically applauds. He laughs, or somehow convinces us he's laughing from behind that mask. He has perfectly ad-libbed the exact reaction you would expect from an overconfident ace. It is a moment of sheer, off-the-cuff genius. And ultimately, it is that arrogance that costs him. He's so busy mocking Sasuke that he forgets to finish him off. Sasuke somehow pulls out a Hurricane Rana out of nowhere and holds on for the flash pin and a huge upset win. The crowd erupts. One of those proper, guttural, collective roars of approval that only comes when people are fully invested and experiencing genuine emotion. The kind of roar Old Trafford might emit when a debutante hits the third goal of his hat-trick. It feels like a huge moment on a par with Misawa beating Jumbo or Okada beating Tanahashi for the first time, as discussed in previous episodes of Boots and Trunks. It is, in my opinion, the greatest finish in wrestling history. Reading some of the reviews back online, I'm appalled to see people marking the match down because of the botch, a word I particularly hate. It is that botch that elevates an already great match into something truly special and memorable. The presence of mind it takes for Liger to think so quickly on his feet and for Sasuke to so seamlessly do the same with his response is out of this world. I'm not sure I can think of a better joint example of ring IQ or ring generalship. At its very core, this match is about an overconfident dismissive bully who never quite fully takes his challenger seriously. On more than one occasion, he had the chance to put him away, but chose not to. The botch affords Liger one last chance to get that arrogance across in the most blatant way possible, which he literally seizes with both hands. And it makes seeing him get his comeuppance a second later all the more satisfying. The finish is so perfect that some have even speculated that they planned it that way. With the amount of punishment that Sasuke takes, it is not unrealistic that he would be disoriented and slip on the top ropes. If that's the case, it's some next level planning and psychology. And honestly, either way, it doesn't really matter. Neither option diminishes the match in any way. Both scenarios, in fact, embellish its greatness. One of the most enjoyable things about Liger is his ability, shared by Hiroshi Tanahashi, to turn on and off his heel work almost like a tap, as the occasion demands, without it ever feeling inauthentic or forced. As Simo Hall becomes unglued around them, he and Sasuke share a moment in the ring. Perhaps they have a quiet chuckle between them at the way things had transpired. He puts his hands up, as if to admit he was wrong, and congratulates Sasuke, leaving with his good guy reputation still intact. The little warrior from the regional Indy has finally earned the respect of the ace. It is an immensely satisfying conclusion to an immensely satisfying match. Chapter 3 Epilogue The 1994 Super J Cup might be the most influential wrestling show in history. It received critical acclaim from all quarters. At the time, Meltzer called it the greatest single night in wrestling history. 
it more than succeeded in its twin aims of proving that junior heavyweights could draw and in creating new stars. Several of those involved would go on to have stellar careers, be it pioneers like Sasuke, revolutionaries like Hayabusa, critical figures in wrestling history like Ligro, Negro Casas and Gato, and world heavyweight champions like Benoit and Guerrero. Super J Cup was the show that put many of its participants on the radars of ECW and WCW and even WWE. It was directly responsible for American companies looking to Japan for star attractions to round out their cards. It also led to an explosion in demand for more footage of Japanese wrestling amongst Western fans. Back in the day, the 94 Super J Cup was one of the most sought after shows in tape trading circles. It is a hugely important show to the wrestling fandom of a generation of Western fans. For many of us, it was the gateway into the wonderful world of Japanese wrestling, in the same way that the Okada-Tanahashi rivalry was for younger generations. With the advent of the internet, it changed the culture of wrestling fandom forever. Perhaps the greatest legacy that the tournament leaves, however, is its influence upon in-ring style all over the world. So many wrestlers modelled themselves on the fast-paced, hard-hitting, athletic style that was showcased at this event. In the mid-2000s US Indies boom, the 90s New Japan junior heavyweight style was the predominant style on show, and many of those at the forefront of that wrestling revolution, such as Danielson and AJ Styles, are now top guys in mainstream promotions all over the world. Even in WWE, where everything is choreographed and forced into the house style, there has been a gradual move towards accepting this style. Known proponents and admirers of the genre, such as Dean Malenko, James Gibson and William Regal, have held positions of influence and authority within the company. Perhaps the most striking evidence of the Jacobs' reach is the scene that closed out WrestleMania 20, as two of the participants, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, celebrated with their world heavyweight titles in the ring. Liger had always believed that smaller, more athletic wrestlers deserved their time in the sun. To see it borne out in the one company that had always resisted such change was the ultimate vindication of Liger's vision of pro wrestling. The match between Jushin Liger and the great Sasuke is a timeless classic wrestling match. It has aged like fine wine. At the time of writing this very script, it was 27 years to the day since the 1994 Super J Cup took place, and it feels just as fresh today as it did back then, in a way that many junior heavyweight matches of the time simply don't. As a standalone match, it is exceptional. The story of the valiant underdog being given a mountain to climb will never get old. The great thing about tournament wrestling is its efficiency. It's a big part of what makes the G1 Climax so great. Due to its very nature, match lengths need to be strictly curtailed. There is no room for bloated excess and self-indulgence on a 14-match card. If you're a regular listener, you're probably aware that I place great value on matches that get straight to the point. And this match does exactly that. At 18 minutes, it's tight and efficient, the perfect length for what they set out to achieve. There's no needless filler. There's no sense of anyone trying to pass the time just to get to the cool bits at the end of their match. Everything that happens feels like it has importance and significance and it holds my interest throughout. It is everything that modern New Japan no longer is in terms of style and structure. Viewing the match in the overall context of the tournament 
only adds to the experience. As we alluded to earlier, the 94 Jacob is very much the great Sasuke story. Others get their cameos, but he is undoubtedly the lead actor. He establishes himself as a threat in the quarterfinals, having the best match of the opening rounds with El Samurai. In the semi-finals, by taking the scalp of Liger, he wins the heart of Sumo Hall. And in the final, he sadly runs out of steam against the unstoppable powerhouse that is Wild Pegasus. But in some ways, a glorious defeat fits the character even better than an unlikely win. Not all great stories need their happy ending, at least not straight away. It can't be a coincidence that in all three of his matches, Sasuke faces established New Japan talents. They're laying groundwork for the future. This tournament would be the springboard for Sasuke to appear more regularly in New Japan. He would go on to have a highly regarded series of matches against Liger in the coming years. This match and this show would have life-changing consequences for Sasuke. He used it as a springboard to worldwide success both in and out of the ring. He went from Japan's version of an indie darling to a top junior heavyweight prospect. Sasuke would eventually make it to the very pinnacle of the junior heavyweight division. I'm sure you're familiar with the iconic photo of him festooned with a ludicrous number of title belts having just won the prestigious J-Crown in 1996. He would go on to wrestle all over the world. Michinoku Pro would develop a cult following in the West. Their talent would appear on the first ever ECW pay-per-view and steal the show. Incredibly, the promotion would sign a working agreement with the WWE of all people. Sasuke even went on to become a member of the Japanese government for a regional community-based indie that originally shied away from the bright lights of Tokyo. It is a stunning, meteoric rise. None of this would have been possible without Sasuke's star-making performance at Sumo Hall. In one single night, he became a made man. I'm certain that the 1994 Super J Cup was the finest ever performance in the long and illustrious career of the great Sasuke. Just like Wayne Rooney's debut at Old Trafford, he saved his best for the biggest stage of all when it mattered the most. On the 16th of April, 1994, at Sumo Hall, a star was born.